Today we're in Genesis, Genesis chapter 25. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me to Genesis chapter 25. We'll pick up at verse um, 27. Genesis chapter 25, verse 27. And then if you have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'll be reading from the ESV translation just in case you're reading from a different one. Uh, here's what we find written, written there. Uh, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man uh, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name is called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that has come to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the unspeakable gift of your presence in the person of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in every believer, joins us together, unites us as a family, baptizes us into the body of Christ. Our Father, we thank you and we realize that in any effort to serve you, we need you. And so we ask that you would help us to do that today, to communicate your word, help us to think about it, reach us where we are. You know what's going on in each of our lives. You know where we are in our journey of faith. But Lord, in some way, may something help each of us uh, to take another step in that journey of faith with you. May we grow in our trust of you. May we be more faithful as a result of what we hear today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So this week, in preparing for the sermon, I ran across a story from CNBC News uh, that talked about a gentleman who lives uh, in California, in the Leona Valley. Uh, his name was uh, Lauren uh, Kreitzer, Lauren Kreitzer. Um, and uh, an event happened back in 2012 in his life that ultimately changed his life for the better. Um, Lauren had been a carpenter, uh, and unfortunately, in 2007, uh, he had a, a near-fatal car accident uh, and the result of that had to be that because of the accident, what happened in the accident, he ended up having to have one of his uh, feet amputated, which uh, hampered his career. and He was no longer able to work as a carpenter. And so as a result of that, he came to a point of financial ruin. Uh, he was broke. He didn't have any money. Uh, he was just eking out a living, living in a shack there. Uh, ended up first not being able to get a disability, but finally was able to get a disability check. And then uh, once he had found a place to live and was able to negotiate in California uh, the re the, a reduced rent uh, after minusing the rent out of uh, what he was receiving in, uh, he was living on $200 a month. And so he was in a very desperate situation for a, a number of years. Uh, back in 2005, though, before this accident had happened, uh, he, his, his grandmother had died, and he had gone over to his grandmother's house uh, to be with his mother and sister to kind of help you know, when a family member dies to kind of clean things out, uh, take in things that 
uh, that, that you have, decide what you're going to sell and get rid of. And when he arrived at the house, his mother and sister had kind of already gone through everything, divvied it up between themselves and kind of had figured out what they wanted and what things they thought they needed to get rid of. And so he was simply going over because his grandmother had promised him that, that when she passed away, there was a series of books uh, that she wanted to pass down to him. So he was going over for that. But when he arrived, there was a one ma major bag that had still had to be sorted through, and they ended up pulling out the bag, and out of it came two blankets. One was a Hudson Bay blanket, and another one was a, a Navajo blanket that had been passed down uh, from their great-grandmother uh, down to the grandmother, down to the, to the family at this point. So when it fell out of the bag, his sister said, looked at the Hudson Bay blanket, and she said, hey, I, I think I'm going to take that one. And he asked her, hey, well, what do you want to do with this other one? She was like, oh, I'm not inter interested in that dirty old thing. I don't want that. You can have it. And so he took that along with the books, and he placed that blanket in his closet for the next seven years. Uh, fast forward in time, uh, in 2011, he's at home. Uh, incapacitated. Uh, his girlfriend at the time was the one helping to support him uh, along with those disability checks that he was getting. Uh, and so uh, 2011, he's at home, he's watching the TV, uh, and he's watching the Antique Road Show. And he notices on the road show that a guy pulls up a blanket that looks exactly like the one he has. And they say that, hey, this blanket is probably worth somewhere between $200,000 to $500,000. And of course, that piques his interest. So he goes and finds that seven-year blanket that's been sitting in the closet and pulls it out. And he's like, whoa, I think this is the same thing, right? And so he ends up uh, talking to his mom about it. And his mom is like, who had moved in at that point in his life, his mom was like, son, you're not going to get anything for that blanket. Those are just dreams. They won't even give you $10 for that blanket. So he was like, all right, mom, I'm still going to take it. So he took it to a local auctioneer. Uh, they looked at the blanket, they reviewed it, he asked them about the story, where it come from, and uh, the guy sent it out, had it examined, and found out that it was an authentic Navajo blanket. And uh, it was a chief's blanket. And uh, he said, this thing is worth between three hundred dollars to $500,000 that you have on your hands right now. And so as a result, they ended up taking it to private auction, and in 77 seconds, the blanket was sold for $1.5 million dollars. And he later received in his account $1.3 million after the fees were, were taking out. He said he couldn't believe it when he called Wells Fargo. He kept calling on the phone, pressing the bank account, just letting it play on the phone. Your account is $1.3 million. <laughs> said he'd hang up and call again <laughs> just to make sure. Just let it play. There it is, right? His life, his life was changed at that point. Uh, what was interesting, though, uh, as I reflected on that story and I went on to read and see what happened later, uh, you, know, you know what happened after that? Uh, some relatives called him who had, he had not heard from in a while. <laughs> and then his sister, the one who had said that she didn't want the blanket, threatened to sue him for some of the money that she didn't want in the blanket. Why? Because she realized that, like her and her mother, they had looked at something that was valuable and treated it as though it was worthless. And then when they came out to find the value of it, they wanted some of it, but it was too late because they had missed 
what was valuable. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today, that you don't miss what is truly valuable and pawn it away as worthless so that you don't make the same mistake. I want to do that simply by, uh, for our brief time together, sharing two stories with you from Scripture, two main stories, and sitting them side by side to point out to you something about faith that will help you to know what is valuable and what is worthless, and so that you might make a right decision. The first story uh, comes to us as it's right out of the text that we have here before us. Uh, it is about a descendant of Abraham. You remember Abraham had a son named Isaac. He had some other sons, but this was the son of promise. And Isaac then, as we find out later in life, he grew up, had, got married, had some kids. Uh, he had two fraternal twin boys after a battle of about 20 years of infertility. Uh, he and his wife had gone through. They ended up having kids, two boys, uh, one named Esau and one named Jacob. And the story is mainly focused on Esau, although Jacob is in the story, but the light is really on Esau. So the story is about him. Now, right before we get into the story, uh, which the, uh, the narrator is building up because this is to be read as in one fell swoop. Uh, he, he's, he's laying the foundation for where he wants to go about some things. But before he gets into this specific incident uh, that he's going to tell us about that happens in the life of Esau and Jacob, uh, he tells us a little bit about them, a little bit about their personalities, and then a little bit about the family dynamic that's going on in their home. So first, a little bit about their personality. So Esau, firstborn son of the twins, uh, grows up to be uh, a, a man of the outdoors. Uh, he's a skilled hunter. The last time we saw a hunter was Nimrod, uh, who was a, a mighty hunter. And, and you kind of get that same kind of language here again, that, that Esau is a skilled hunter. He's an outdoorsman. He likes being outside. Uh, the idea they're getting there is, is somewhat aggressive. He, he's, he's willing, to, he's, he's self-reliant, wants to get out and hunt. And that, that's kind of his, his kind of way of handling life. Uh, and we learn a little something by him by contrast with Jacob. Uh, Jacob is described as a man of wholeness. Uh, here they use or translate the word as quiet, but if you were to look at other English translations, they're going to translate it differently because the word there actually used later uh, in Scripture has to do with moral perfectness. But we know that, that, that Jacob is not morally perfect, so there's something else that they're getting at. So more than likely what they're getting at here is a wholeness of character in the sense of that he's an even-tempered man. He, he's not given to rash emotion. We find out from things just about how he plays out his life. He's a thinking man, uh, and he's calculating, and he's patient, and he knows when to, to make certain decisions and moves. And so that's kind of the idea. So they kind of get that idea, and that implies that Esau is not the type of guy, that he's more of a rash, emotional, led-in-the-moment kind of person. And so that's kind of the contrast. And then the other thing that we learn about Jacob is uh, because he dwells in tents, this is pointing or pushing in the direction is that uh, unlike his brother who's become a hunter, uh, he's more like probably taking up the family business of shepherding. And so that's kind of what he does. He, he's more of a, a shepherding type person. So that's Jacob and Esau. Kind of gives you a, a, a kind of an overview of their personalities, which you'll see play out in the weeks to come. In addition to that, we learn something, something uh, interesting about the family dynamic, which plagues the family of Abraham from this point on. And there's this introduction of this concept of favoritism in the family. That the, that the parents have a favorite child. It doesn't mean that they don't love the other child. It simply means that they prefer one child over the other. So Esau is a man after his dad's own heart. Perhaps you've heard the saying that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Well, in this case, that's true. Uh, in this case, the reason why 
Isaac loves his son Esau is because they have similar types of bents. They both love wild game. And you know how it is, men. You have a child that you love sports, they love sports, you love a team, they love that same team. Y'all just connect and bond over that. So, you know, you, you, you want to be around them more. And that's kind of the idea here. Isaac favors Esau. They have similar interests. Rebecca, on the other hand, uh, she favors Jacob. There's no description given as to the reason why she favors. And so there's conjecture about why that might be the case. Perhaps it was simply because, remember when she had that turbulent pregnancy and she thought she was going to die because it was like a war going on uh, inside of her. And she went to the Lord and she was given the answer that inside of you is two nations that when they come out, they're going to be divided. The younger is going to rule over the older. And, and she may have favored him because of that. It may have been because she had watched Isaac as Esau was growing up and she was watching him interact with their two boys. And she always noticed how uh, Isaac always seemed to have preference for Esau over Jacob. And perhaps he got left out or left behind on some things while dad was on a hunting trip and Esau was along and Jacob was left behind. And perhaps just because she was a mother, she had maternal instinct and she saw what was happening to one child in the relationship. She just her heart just went out to this other son, and so she started to favor him. Or it could have just been the reality that Jacob was a man of the tents. Uh, he was that child in the home that, you know, mothers, you know, the reality, he was the obedient child. You got children, and they have different personalities, but he was the one who, you know, you would say, hey, would you mind cleaning up your room? You didn't have to ask again. He would take care of that. The dishes need to be cleaned. He was in there cleaning them up. He was the one sweeping the floor, always around the house to help. He was the one who was willing to, to do what you asked without giving you problems or back talk. Or every time you ask something, it's always, why? Why? Why, mama? Why, mama? And you're like, please, can you just do what I'm asking you to do? Right? Whereas Esau is more of the challenging child. And so her heart probably gravitated more towards Jacob for one of those reasons. Whatever the reason was, though, this favoritism in the family becomes the seedbed, as it does in every, in every family, for what was going to play out through their lives. And this is the first instance of that. It's sibling rivalry. Sibling rivalry. So now we get to the story of the incident. Uh, now we might have some time to think about this, but, but, but kind of start to frame it out of, of where this is taking place. Taking place, excuse me. Uh, taking place in, in relationship to the camp. Now remember, Isaac has received all of what Abraham had. Abraham was extremely wealthy. Wealth in the sense of not necessarily money and monetary, there was some of that, but mostly in the sense of people, male and female servants, flocks and herds and various animals. That's why his wealth was being measured uh, in the ancient society. So he's got a lot of people around him. That all gets passed down to Isaac. And the Bible says that Isaac has great wealth, and that's what it's talking about. He's got lots of people, big encampment, lots of tents. He's the main family running the show. That's kind of the idea. In light of the way things play out, most likely this is not happening at the main camp. This is at an outpost. And Jacob, because he's one of the heirs of the family and because he's probably in the shepherding business, some of them have taken, some of the shepherds from the family group have had to go out for grazing away from the main camp. And Jacob is the one overseeing whatever servants there are, and that's why they're out. And most likely, this is why Esau is able to find them. He probably went with them, and he went hunting, and then he comes back to the camp. And that's when the story starts to unfold. Uh, Esau stumbles in from the hunt. But on this one, it's been an unsuccessful time. We don't know how long he's been out hunting. 
We don't know where he went, how far away he traveled, but he comes in and he's physically exhausted. He's hungry and he's thirsty. The text says he's, he's famished. He, he, he's exhausted uh, from that hunt. Uh, and, and, and so he comes in in, in, the, in this type of state, mentally and physically uh, exhausted as he's exerted probably a lot of energy in trying to hunt and has been unsuccessful. And you know how it is. You're hungry. You're looking for a friendly place to go. And where does he end up at? He goes to the place where he expects to receive help, the place that most likely his brother's leading, the encampment of the shepherds where his brother's at. But unfortunate for him, what he doesn't know is that he's not going to receive warm, a warmest welcome as he thought. Because when he stumbles into camp and he ends up asking for food from his brother who is probably taking over whatever servant was doing because he's going to use it, his brother sees his, sees his older brother coming in and in need, and for him, it's a moment to capitalize on. And he's going to take what should be a moment of brotherly love and turn it into a business deal. So this is what happens uh, in the text. I like the way the Net Bible translates uh, Esau's statement or request. It translated this way, please feed me some of this red stuff. Yes, this red stuff, because I'm starving. So that's the kind of idea. And his brother says to him, I see you're hungry, man. See, you look like you could use something to eat. Some of this stuff I got in this pot would help you out right now. I'd be willing to give you some of this for a low, low fee. How about you sell me your birthright, and then I can feed you, and you would be okay. And that's when an interesting thing starts to unfold. Now, for some of us uh, who don't live in that ancient culture, we're, we're not from that culture, this might not mean much to us. And so we're just reading through the Genesis. We read that, and we just keep right on moving to the next verse. But for an ancient audience who was reading this, they would have been appalled. Their mind would have stopped. They would have looked at that, and they would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not a good deal. There's no way that Esau's going to take this deal. There is no way on earth he's going to accept giving up his birthright for a bowl of whatever's in that pot, the red stuff. There's no way he's going, going to do that. See, the birthright for them, uh, at least from what we know, at least, at least it at least meant this, that if there were several heirs, male heirs, uh, depending on the heirs, it would be divided up, uh, equal shares, except for the oldest brother would receive double the amount of inheritance as everyone else in the family. So, and in some cases, when there was only two brothers, the eldest brother would receive everything, and the other brothers would receive nothing. And so this is the kind of situation that potentially could happen in Jacob and Esau's life. So that's kind of the idea. And the reason why he's given double inheritance is because there's other things implied by that. Because when his father would die, then at that point he would become responsible for, if his mother was still living, care for her. And then any unmarried sisters, he would be responsible for caring for them and negotiating their marriage settlements, the dowries that would come in and all that type of stuff, and how the families would work out and who she could marry, and he would work all those types of details out. And then he would preside over the family worship, that is, whatever gods or God that they worship. He would lead the family in that worship of their gods, or in this case, the God, the creator God, Yahweh. And then not only that, then that also set him as firstborn the right to receive the blessing of the family, in this case, Abraham's blessing, or which God had given to him that had been passed down to Isaac and was now to come to Esau as the eldest son. 
So there's a lot in this. The only, the only catch, of course, is you have to wait for your dad to die. Not that you would be wishing your dad to die, but you, the only time you're going to get it is that. And so for him, this is probably a number of years away. Think at least 80 years. Far distant future. So here's the situation. So he's got something that's extremely valuable, but it's far distant future. I like the way one poet by the name of Jean Steig summed up this whole event when she wrote these words. Esau said, I'm feeling faint. Ah, said Jacob, no, you ain't. Papa's blessing, Esau cried, is mine by rights, but I'll have died. Of hunger first, for pity's sake, my birthright for your lentils, Jake. Your birthright, Jacob murmured. So dig in before the stuff gets cold. This is the kind of scene that's, un, that's playing. Now, what we find out from the text as it lays it out, and in this case, is that Esau is an impetuous man. He lives for the moment. And in this case, he reasons out loud, what good is a distant blessing in the future versus me, what I'm feeling like right now in this moment? I'm feeling like I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat. And so what good is a blessing that's way off in the future if I can get something to satisfy me right now? And so what does he do? He makes the unwise decision to sell his birthright for a bowl of the red We come to find out later in the text as you read that the red stuff is just a common meal. He doesn't even get fine dining out of the deal. It's just everyday food. It's lentil stew or soup. Now, what's interesting here is as you've been reading the Genesis narrative, the the way that the author portrays this by using what is is, uh, referred to in in the staccato fashion of action is just kind of boom, 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 boom right after it happens takes our minds back as readers, if we've been reading the book right together, it makes your mind go all the way back to the garden because that's exactly how it happened in the garden. She gave, he ate, and then all the action just happened real fast. Here, he gives, he eats, and then all the action happens. It's that kind of mistake, that kind of thing that was going on in the garden. Something fatal is happening in this moment. And so we have that kind of idea here. Now, why is Esau willing to give up something so valuable for so little? And in in this moment, the commentator does something for us that does not normally happen in the Bible. This is one of the rare instances. He tells us something about the internal state of Esau. Look at the end of verse 34. Notice what it says there. He despised his birthright. The word despised here means he treated or valued it as worthless. Because he did not value it, he was willing to give it up for next to nothing. And that's why he's in the situation he's in. One author reflected on this said, by selling his birthright so cheaply, Esau became the epitome of folly. He symbolizes those who place satisfying their feelings in the moment above valuing issues that matter over time. Esau surrenders what is valuable for a cheap experience in the moment, which then begs the question, as one author goes on to ask, if he so lightly esteems his material birthright, what reason is there to believe that he will value his covenant birthright? That's the first story. That brings us to the second story. The second story is about another descendant of Abraham. Uh, Abraham had a descendant by the name of Judah. Judah had a descendant by the name of David. David had a descendant by the name of Joseph, who married a woman called Mary, of whom Jesus Christ 
was born. The second story is about Jesus. We find it in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Let me read the text to you. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you're the Son of God, please command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall love the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So after Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit rests upon him, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness for testing. And he's out there in the Judean wilderness, walking around, praying, doing whatever he's doing, but he's doing it without food. And at the end of 40 days, Jesus is famished. Jesus is hungry. And at the end of this, a trap is laid for him, not by Jacob, but by Satan himself. And what does he want Jesus to do? He wants him to give up what is valuable for something cheap and experienced right in the moment. He wants him to indulge of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And so he gives Jesus three temptations to try to get him to indulge in one of those things. But even in a weakened state, even famished and hungry, Jesus resists and refuses to give in to any deal that the devil is trying to make. Why is that the case? As we look and look at the story of Esau, we realize something about Jesus. Jesus values the issues that matter over time, that is God and his word, and his relationship with his father more than he values satisfying his feelings, desires, or cravings in the moment of temptation. And because he values God's word, his relationship with God more than satisfying his flesh or his own personal desires, then he's able to, when those moments arise, resist the offer that is made to him. And so here's my point from those two stories. It's this. Faith in Jesus or God means that we value God and what he values more than we value satisfying our feelings in the moment. So what about us? Well, the author of Hebrews brings the text right up to us in this present day. Uh, In chapter 12, he says to those who are followers of Jesus, those with faith in Jesus, he says to them, you ought to look to him, the author, and finish your faith and run this race with patience and then move towards the goal that you see in Christ Jesus. But later in the text, he brings up Esau in this very instance in Esau's life, and he says to believers, don't follow that example. Here's what the text says at the end of chapter 12. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, the original recipients that James Axel talked about a few weeks ago probably were what we would refer to today as Messianic Jews, Jews who have faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And they are because of persecution, because of their uh, beliefs in Jesus, or suffering whatever it is, some forms of persecution that's making life very uncomfortable. And so they're wanting to compromise long-term blessing relationship with Jesus by going back to Judaism so they can get short-term relief. And that's kind of the idea that we're faced in life. There are moments in life when we are faced with making a decision between our long-term blessing, inheritance to Christ, of Christ that we have that's been promised to us through the gospel and all those wonderful things and satisfying our desires in the moment. That's like the soup. That's what we're faced with, that same decision. I like the way Dr. Hamill sums this up. He says, the incident to which the writer of Hebrews clearly alludes illustrates a misplaced sense of values more than it does sexual immorality. To prostitute oneself, as in Esau's case, means to be bereft of any spiritual values, to put the needs of, immediate, of the immediate moment ahead of any other considerations, to put feeling ahead of conscience. To give away much, sell your birthright, and receive back little in return for a single meal. This, says the writer of Hebrews, is what Esau did, but what those who pursue peace and sanctification will avoid. And so what the text is saying to us is that we don't want to be like Esau in this way and despise our spiritual, spiritual heritage. What does it look like in other situations? What, what might this look like, not just giving up a meal, your birthright for a meal? Because you probably think to yourself, I would never do that. I would never sell my house for a meal at McDonald's. It just wouldn't happen. You would never find me doing that. But what other ways have we done that in our lives? Let me give you two examples from Scripture, one Old Testament, one New Testament. One Old Testament. So there was a, a descendant of Abraham by the name of David who became king of Israel. Uh, and, and, and David had had lived his life in devotion to the Lord, so he rose to power and became the head of the state of Israel. Uh, and, and, and there was kind of a golden age, which really would come into to terms in his term Solomon, his son Solomon's life. But in David, things were going great, and so he rose to power after Saul had failed the Lord and had been fired on the job. Uh, and so God had replaced him with King David. But as David kept living his life and enjoying prosperity and success, there had been room that he had been making in his life as it relates to women. And he had been making room, space in his life for this by the types of relationships that he was having with women throughout his life. So there comes a point in his life, because he's been making room for it, that he is put to the test, where he is tempted to have an affair and take another man's wife. He has the power to do it, he has the position to do it, and he has the opportunity to do it. But because he had already made room in his life, the decision was already made because he had lost the battle years previously because of how he had decided to live his life. And so when the moment came, he failed. He took another man's wife. What's interesting is how the Lord views what happened in David's life. Let me read the text to you. This is what it says. The Lord or the prophet Nathan is coming. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and it killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, 
because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I just want, to, want you to notice the word that's repeated in the text, despised. If you remember, this is the same word that was used in Genesis 30, 25, verse 34, to describe how Esau felt about his birthright. Same exact Hebrew word here, not a different English gloss. Same exact Hebrew word. He treats the word of God and his relationship with God as not valuable in that moment. He treats his satisfaction of his feelings, his desires, his cravings as more important, and he counts his relationship with God as worthless. And that's how God sees this action. And the outcome in David's life is that David never overcomes the consequences of this decision. Notice what the text says. The sword will never depart from your house. Did that mean he lost his relationship with God? No. As the New Testament tells us, he was a man after God's own heart. God still had David's, um, David still had God's favor. He was still in relationship with God. There are future promises about David being in the kingdom. None of that was lost. But in his life, the consequences of that decision had long-term effects. And so in the book of 2 Samuel, after this incident, just like Saul's life, David's life goes into decline and never recovers. Because David decided, like Esau, that a meal in the moment was more important than issues that matter over time. That's the first instance. New Testament emphasis. Perhaps you heard of a gentleman by the name of, of Demas. He is referred to in some of the letters of Paul. Uh, he was a co-worker in a gospel ministry, and at different points early in the ministry of Paul, he had been there. He had been there for Paul in his first Roman imprisonment, and there's some, some things to indicate that he was also there in Paul's second Roman imprisonment. But in this case, on that second one, for whatever reasons was going on in Demas's life, he ended up abandoning Paul, leaving him in a desperate situation. And Paul then, in writing his son in the ministry, Timothy, reflects on the life of Demas, and he says this about Demas of why he leaves him. Paul says this, Demas, because he has loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Paul says, I've been left in the lurch, uh, not just spatially, but spiritually also, because Demas has left Rome because he has fallen in love with this world. He has valued satisfying his desires in the moment over those issues that matter over the long term. He has accepted the values of this world, its corrupt system, more than he values what God is offering through, to us through the gospel. I like the way the NLT translated it. translates it as, he loves the things of this life. Demas chose, I will take the soup instead of my inheritance. Dr. John Walton, at this point, I thought he had some, a pertinent question that he asked and sobering response to this kind of idea and how this plays out in our life. So he asked the question, he says, well, what can we expect from God when we show ourselves unworthy of his blessing by despising the values that comprise our spiritual heritage? When Saul showed similar tendencies, the verdict was clear, 1 Samuel 15, 28, and the Lord said, Samuel said to him, that is to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you on this day and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. See, God elsewhere in the text in 2 Samuel is portrayed as one who engineers reconciliation, but that is a different thing. Reconciliation is always possible, but one can lose the privileges and forfeit the blessing of God long before the point of reconciliation ever comes. Though God's time is never wasted, Christians can waste 
their own years. And in doing that, they can forego the blessing of God, the spiritual growth, the opportunities for ministry and service when they abandon their spiritual heritage. Sometimes, even when, they're t- when they return, their ill-advised choices have uh, brought consequences that cannot easily be undone, such as a criminal record, an unbelieving spouse, financial ruin, health ravaged by self-destructive habits, children have been, who have been so influenced by previous godless example that their course in life is set. In such cases as these, the blessing of a spiritually productive marriage, good health, a godly family may be unachievable. Such blessings of God can be permanently forfeited. Brothers and sisters, it's costly to eat the soup and give up your inheritance. So how do we avoid that in life? Paul, in writing to the Colossian church Christians, he said there's a way to do that, but it has to do with your internal state. He said this, Colossians chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, that is, you're a believer, you've been indwelt by the Spirit, you've been given new life, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul says, listen, there has to be an internal change in your value system. And if what you value most is the things you can get out of this life, then don't be surprised that when you're put to the test, if you compromise and you choose the meal and give up your birthright, and it has lasting effects in your life because your heart was already there. And because your heart was already there, all you needed was an opportunity to act upon it. So when it arose in your life, you just followed what you already cared about because that's what you loved. So Paul says, have a change of values. What has to matter to you are the things of God. So that when you're put to the test like Jesus, whether that's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life, you will, like Jesus, be able to resist and refuse whatever deal, no matter how hungry you are, whatever that hunger looks like in those moments so that you won't compromise your inheritance. But what if you say, well, I'm already in that situation. I'm already realizing that there are values in my heart where I value the things of this life as more important than God and his word and the the issues that matter over time. Well, in my small group, we've been talking about what do you do? How do you live a gospel-centered life? It's the way that all of us do as Christians. It's through repentance and faith. Repentance. You've got to acknowledge it. You've got to confess it. You've got to bring it before God, and you've got to have a desire to forsake it. And then you will find mercy from God. You've got to bring it into God's presence and say, God, in my heart, I recognize that I care more about this than I do about what you said about this. I love this more than what you said about that. And I know that that's wrong, but I can't change my own heart. I already have an attachment to this. I need you to break that attachment and to reorient my values so that I can live differently. And I want to do that. Whatever you're going to have to do to do that in my life, I will cooperate with you. I'll move in that direction so that my values will change. 
And then you ask God, help me trust that what you said really is true, because ultimately that is what, is what has happened. Because you've had a breakdown in your trust, I've had a breakdown in my trust, because I don't believe what God says is really true. That's why I look to the world to satisfy and meet that need, because I believe this can meet my need, because I don't think God can. So that's why faith is necessary. When you trust the promises of God, then you'll begin to value what God values. That's what you see in the life of Jesus. He always did what the Father said because he always believed what the Father said, and he never doubted. He trusted that the Father would do exactly what he said. Brothers and sisters, that's the, that is the challenge that we face in this life. So when you have the opportunity, I don't know what it will look like. It probably won't look like you stumbling into a camp hungry and your brother will be there. Hopefully he won't do that to you if you have a brother. But whatever that situation comes up in your life, I pray that in that moment that God will strengthen you so that you might say no to the suit and yes to your inheritance.